is the Ultimate Advisor Podcast. The podcast for financial advisors who want to create a thriving, successful, and scalable practice. Each week, we'll uncover the ways that you can improve your referrals, your team, your marketing, and your business operations, helping you to level up your advising practice, bring in more assets, and create the advising practice that you've dreamed of. You'll be joined by your hosts, Brian Sweet, who has more than half a billion dollars in assets under management, Brittany Anderson, the driving force for advisors looking to hire, improve their operations and company culture, and Dre Redfern, who can help you systematize and automate your practice's marketing to effortlessly attract new clients. So, what do you say? Let's jump into another amazing episode of the Ultimate Advisor Podcast. Here. Uh, he is known as the ambassador of hope. And, and Andre, you speak to your journey more than I can give it any sort of, of credit or wordsmithing to. So I'm going to pass it over to you, let you share the journey and, and, and just share with our audience all the magic that you have to offer. Got you. Well, definitely want to thank you for having me. It's definitely been a pleasure just to be invited to places. And I don't really get to go outside like some of us on the docks, but we're working towards that. <laughs> um, my name is Andre. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. And what I do for a living is called leadership development. I go around the world and I help agencies do and be better. Um, that's my goal. That's my focus. And that's what I do. I grew up in Boston. My mom married a high school sweetheart. She had two kids. Her husband went to prison for robbing banks. She met my dad, a local hustler. She had four more kids. So his mom, dad, six kids. Life is great except for my dad had a habit of beating my mom because he didn't know how to communicate well. So we go through the domestic violence scenarios. I'm just a little kid. This is how life is. And I get old enough to go to school. I started going to school. And I'm in the first grade. And all of a sudden, the busing crisis of Boston happens and kids are throwing rocks and names at us for trying to be educated in different schools. So now all of a sudden I'm being called niggers and spare chuckers. I'm trying to go to school, having rocks crash through my bus window. And I don't really understand it. I go to my dad and asked him about it. And what I didn't understand is my dad grew up in Virginia in the 40s. In Virginia in the 40s, the same thing happened to him and his brothers and sisters. So he really couldn't help me. So I was left as a nine-year-old to process the busing crisis by myself. And I don't process well. One day the rock started, one day they stopped. For my mom, one day the beating started, one day they stopped because she kicked my dad out. I came home from school, they said, dad's gone. There was no conversation, no explanation, he was just gone. So now a single mom, six kids living in the inner city. You've seen this story. You heard the movie. We struggle through. I get to middle school, struggle some more. By the time I get to high school, I'm just in the street full time because I don't have guidance and a lot of other things. And I, just, I quit. I used to play the trumpet. And some friends of mine convinced me that playing the trumpet was stupid. So I stopped. And once I gave up my dream of playing the trumpet, I had no purpose in life. And without purpose, you have no destination. Without no destination, it's all bad. So I drifted until I hit prison. I got to prison at 18. When I got there, it was a reunion of all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends from special needs, all my friends from juvie probation. They were all at the prison just waiting for me. And for the first six years, I participated in what they call prison culture. Gangs, violence, drama, drugs, every day. And that's what I did. And after six years of being in prison, I finally realized that I was the king of nowhere. I became what they call a boss or whatever you want to call it, but I was a boss of nothing. I was in the middle of nowhere around a bunch of people who were all miserable and I was claiming to be the boss of that. And on top of that, I didn't have control. So I decided that being the boss of a prison was no longer exciting, fun, or fruitful. So I said, I want to be successful. I want to be an entrepreneur for lack of a better term. I said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be successful. So I picked a school called Harvard University. I'm not sure if you heard of it. And I said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to Harvard. And I'm going to do this thing. I came out my cell the next day. I talked to all my friends. And they said, are you crazy? You can't go to Harvard. I said, why? They said, you're black. You're a criminal. Um, you're a gang leader. And they gave me all the reasons I couldn't go. So I walked away from them. I called my mom. She thought I was crazy, too. Shit. I called my dad. And I said, dad, I know I've been a disappointment. I know I haven't been the son that you wanted. But I'm going to make you proud. I'm going to go home and go to Harvard. He said, you're talking crazy. They're going to come hurt you. Stop talking like that. Because had my father stood up in Petersburg Square in 1945 and announced to white people he was going to Harvard, they'd have hung him. It wouldn't even have been a discussion. It wouldn't have been a trial. And they just said he had it coming. So he was scared for me 
talking what he called crazy talk. You, you can't do that. They won't let you. And it was the first time I ever heard my father scared. And he was scared for me. But I got off the phone with my dad and I realized something that I got to do this by myself. And I started out by myself. And the best thing happened and the worst thing happened. The worst thing that happened is nobody believed me and nobody thought it was possible. The best thing that happened is nobody believed me and nobody thought it was possible. Because had one of my friends said to me, Dre, that's a great idea, let's go. I'd have tried to take 10 gang members from prison to Harvard and it probably never would have worked. But by me having to go by myself, it made it actually <laughs> feasible and possible. So I wrote down what I needed to do. First, who is Andre? I'm black, I'm uneducated, I'm angry, I'm violent, I'm in prison, I'm a gang leader, I'm hostile. I just got no family support, no education. I wrote down everything I was. And then on that list, the thing that I found was most important is, is Andre's a quitter. Because I look back over my life, I quit on band, I quit on sports, I quit on leadership, I quit on everything, which only left me bad options. So I got this from Keith Cunningham. He said, if you don't identify the real problem, you're going to build a machine for the problem that's not. I could have said, well, I'm in jail because I'm black. I'm in jail because I didn't have a dad. I'm in jail because I grew up poor. And I built a machine to fix those things. The real reason Andre went to jail is I was a quitter. All the things that were afforded to me or given the opportunity for, I quit on. So I fixed the quit thing. I said, no longer can I be a quitter because I'll just end up in another prison, whether it's a company I hate or a relationship I hate. And I said, I'm just gonna not be a quitter. Then I started my goal and my journey, got my GED, taught myself how to read and write. Then I went to the law library and I taught myself the law. Then I went to anger management because I had a slight anger management problem. I started working on my anger. And I just started every day for the next eight years, 20 hours a day, working on me and the things that were on my list. Then after 14 years total, I walked out of prison. I went from the prison parole office, from the parole office to a youth center. I started talking to little black boys, little black boys. I told them they were going to jail because somebody let them down. Somebody wasn't there for them and somebody didn't teach them how to process their emotions. And I started doing trauma-informed care 90 minutes after I got out. Then after like three weeks of talking to the boys, they asked me to talk to the girls. I said, I don't know nothing about being a girl. They said, can you talk to the girls? I went to talk to the girls. Molestation, rape, beatings, drugs, self-esteem. This is just horrendous stuff that was happening to these young girls. And I became de facto dad to a whole building full of girls in lockup because they'd never been shown proper etiquette or care. So I'm doing this, I'm doing gang outreach, everything's great. And then somebody said, Andre, there's some white kids that need your help. I'm like, white kids don't need my help. They own everything. Their families own everything. They own the sports teams, they own the politics, they own the businesses, they own everything. They own everything. Why do rich white kids need me? So I go to a rich white school finally after a discussion and the rich white kids do drugs. The rich white kids drink. The rich white kids have bullies. The rich white kids had the special needs class, even though they had a wonderful name for it. <laughs> it was still special needs. And they had kids that didn't fit in. They had kids who wanted to kill themselves. And when I started talking to them, I realized that they had just as bad a time as we did in the hood, except for they did it in nicer houses. So I said to myself, never again will I judge somebody based on my ignorance. I started working with white kids. And I just, for the last 21 years, have been going out into communities across the country and across the world, trying my best to be helpful. And I try to find solutions. So when white kids were dying from opioids, the suburban parents didn't know what to do because it was a new thing in their neighborhoods. Well, we've been dealing with drug addiction forever. So when we came in, we understood the programming, we understood the process, we understood the, the pitfalls and how to connect and communicate to somebody with an addiction problem. And we started bringing that to the suburbs. So I've worked in Scottsdale, I've worked in all throughout Arizona, I've worked in Los Angeles in white communities because they needed the help and they didn't have the help. If you're in a rich white community, there's no drop-in center, there's no AA classes, there's no, there's no drug counselors. And in our neighborhoods, we've been dealing with it for so long that we, everybody's a semi-pro um, addiction specialist. <laughs> so we brought that to the suburbs. And then we started working, of course, in prisons. And we started, I met a guy named Jules Gothard. He's one of the top business professors at London Business School that does executive education. They were doing a field trip of sorts and they came to our nonprofit and they met me. And he said, if Andre can do this with gang members, if Andre can do this with killers, what can he do with businessmen? 
So they flew me to London. They stuck me in a room with um, Deutsche Bank. They said, Drake, go for it. We don't know how this is going to work, but it's going to do what you do. Now, I went in the room with Deutsche Bank. It was a bunch of white guys in suits. And I started, before I was about to start talking to them, I said, listen, technically my first corporate speech. I said, I've never spoken to a room full of white guys in suits. And I don't know nothing about banking. What can I do to make this speech the best thing for you? And they said, Andre, we've been banking since before you were born. Just don't talk to us in banking terms. Tell us your story and trust that we're smart enough to draw the lines. I said, I can do that. <laughs> and I told them my story and it went well. And London Business School and I have been working together since 2001. I've done Deutsche Bank, Den & Foods, Lines Construction, Bridge Patrol. I, all their top billion dollar clients request me now. We 100 on this training. So I'm requested and I've done trainings in Germany and Africa throughout the United States with them in London and they bring me in and I've been part of their de facto faculty for 20 plus years now. And I just kept working and building and I look for solutions. When Ferguson riots happened in 2016, they brought me in to stop the riots. And I went in, my strategy to stop the riots was to listen to the pain of the people. I wasn't trying to do right or wrong. It's why are you angry? Where is your pain? Everybody on this call, everybody in America, everybody in the world has potential. But if your pain is bigger than your potential, your, your, your potential never happened. So I don't focus on the potential. I focus on the pain. And it's trauma-informed care yet again. And I help people understand, resolve their pain. And then they're natural. We're born good people. Every baby is a wonderful baby. And they're taught something bad or good. So I get the pain out of the way and I let the goodness take over. And I, this has been my system for the last 30 years of my life. Help people heal their pain and trust that the goodness inside of them will lead and guide to them where they need to be. So we fixed Ferguson. We fixed high schools. We've been to Honduras and had the highest murder rate in the world and we fixed them. Then I just kept working. It was two and a half years ago. There was a riot in South Carolina prisons and seven men were murdered. And they called me and they said, Andre, we got dead bodies on the floor. So I flew to South Carolina. I went into the prison system and I've been there for a little over two years now. And in the two years that I've been running this program, I took all the top gang leaders and put them in one unit. And we started counseling the leaders because I do leadership development, not follow a training. And in the two years we've been running the program, we have no dead people. We have no staff assaults. We have no use of force. We've had one fist fight and it was a COVID fight over hand sanitizer. Uh, so in two years, we've had one fist fight from seven dead people. And it was just three weeks ago, there was a lieutenant in another unit being attacked. An inmate, for whatever reason, attacked him, held him to the floor and stabbed him to death. And one of the guys from my program went over, physically saved the lieutenant, pulled the guy off him so the lieutenant can get to safety, then fought the man hand to knife for five minutes and disarmed him. And when I first got to the program, I got to the prison, it was, we have to challenge and set expectations of these men that are above and beyond anybody ever thought possible. We have to expect them to be the greatest people on the planet. Not saying, well, since you're a prisoner, we only have, we want you to be a level two. I need you to be level 15 plus on a scale of one to 10. And that's what we taught them. And that's what we brought to them. And that's what we expected to them. And when that guy who's doing a life sentence, he's never going home, saw the Lieutenant being murdered. He said, that's not right. He didn't say, that's a God, that's my enemy, it's not my business. He said, that's not right. And he was willing to give his own life to save a life. And he put his own life on the line to save a life. And when he did that, it only validated the concept of people, when you remove their pain and you give them expectations above and beyond anybody's wildest dreams, they can't extend. They can't ascend to it. People see me and think I'm miraculous because I went from prison to Harvard. I went from prison to the White House. I went from prison to London Business School. No, I'm not the only one. There are thousands of men and women who if given the opportunity in the right environment that can ascend. There are people in your companies that if you give them the right environment, they can ascend. There are people in your families, there's people in your neighborhoods that if given the right environment and, and inputs, they can ascend. And you have to have expectations that are so lofty and so high that people think you're crazy because as entrepreneurs crazy works crazy works if you ain't crazy you can't be an entrepreneur it just it just can't happen so and it was 
three years ago, three and a half years ago, as I was out in Phoenix and I was doing outreach. Now it happened to be in Scottsdale. So I'm doing a lot of opioid addiction and suicide prevention for the rich kids in Scottsdale. And a friend of mine says, you have to meet Joe Polish. So I went to go meet Joe Polish, a guy I never heard of. We met at a diner. He had his little, he, I had sweatpants on, he had yoga pants on. <laughs> now, I don't know the difference, <laughs> but uh, I think white people wear yoga pants and black people wear sweatpants. <laughs> but it looked the same to me. <laughs> but it's all entitled. So we meet five minutes of the conversation. He says, Andre, I love what you do. I want to support what you do. And we started, we've been working together ever since on our mission is not anything short of how do we save lives? When we get on a call, me and Joe, it's how do you save lives? That's it. And we talk once, twice a day, every day for the last three years. And it's how do you save lives? It's not how do we make another sales letter, not how we build another funnel. It's how do we actually impact the global discussion around humanity for everybody dealing with addiction and struggling. And that's what we do and that's why we're here. And I can tell you a thousand stories, a thousand places. But my thing is, as I look at you, you all look like wonderful people and you look like you're doing wonderful things, but um, you have bad days. There's always people you can call for your good days. Who do you call for your bad days? When the wife's stressing you out or the kids are stressing you out or the grandkids are going through something or business is going through something, we have to build in the safety component for us. Self-care is not selfish. We need you to be the best version of who you are. We need your business. I have a friend in St. Louis named Rusty Keeley. He brings me in to do charity work all the time. YPO, mega million dollar business. And, and I'm, he's, he brought me one time, he walked me through his office. He has a whole wall of places he donates to. He says, Dre, you see all these people I donate to? I said, yeah, I said, that's wonderful. He says, no, I donate to them. How I donate to them? I run this business. If my business shuts down, I can't give to them. Self-preservation is real. I got to feed my family, pay my rent, keep the lights on. Then once I do that, then I can do outreach to the world. And he said to me, he said, listen, take care of your base and then you can do outreach from there. So your businesses and your families are essential that you take care of your base and then you can do outreach from there. And last June, George Floyd died and it was murdered. How you want to look at it? And my phone started ringing. Every white friend I ever had in America started calling me, Dre, what do I do? Um, they're saying they were racist. They're saying we're colonizers. They're saying that we're, we're empirical with de facto slave owners. They're saying that we don't care. They're saying that we don't know. They're saying that we're complicit. And I, I put up a post on Tuesday of a black screen. Was that enough? I gave $10,000 to the to Negro College Fund. Is that enough? I did, what is enough? <laughs> what does this look like? And how do I pro, how do I support Black Lives Matter if they're burning and looting things? I mean, if, how do I support this agency? Who's in charge of what? Why are there all these factions for this one group? And they just didn't know. So I got on the call with them and I explained to them why Black Lives Matter has 20 different factions. And because I just give you a quick, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Mega Evers, I can go to like 20 more. Anybody who's ever risen up in the history of this country to lead black people to a better land has been murdered. So black folks have figured out, if you try to be the leader of black folks, you're gonna get murdered. So nobody wanted to be the leader. So now everybody goes under one banner where you can't pick one person. So it's safety in being 20 people in the one banner. So the Black Panthers were murdered. I'm saying Malcolm X murdered. I mean, doesn't matter who did it at this point, but the baseline is they all died trying to be the leadership. So now nobody wants to be the leader. Everybody wants to be part of the mob. So you have mob rule in regards to trying to bring about social change. And that's what that is. And my thing is when I work with my white friends, like is understanding how do you understand the plight of black folks and where they are and what do they really want? And how do they actually, how do they feel about it? How do they want to move forward? Because this is for me, the greatest time in our country because never before have we had the opportunity to have discussion around social injustice to the point where we can finally move past it. When Malcolm X died, it wasn't a place for conversation. When Martin Luther King died, there was no place for conversation. When Huey P. Newton died, there was no place for conversation. For whatever the reason, George Floyd's death has opened the door. We can have a conversation that we can actually put the past in the past. We can actually go forward as a nation 
of people who are saying on something, we're better now. Things have happened, but we can actually put them to rest and go forward. We don't have to say, hey, I don't know nothing about that because you not knowing doesn't negate what's happened. And as nobody's looking to shame, blame, or point fingers, I'm saying this is a great time to actually heal. We've never had the chance to heal before. So I'm excited. And I tell all my white friends, call me. I'll help you process this because three conversations need to happen. One with your employees because they need leadership from you, not the answers. You don't have to have the answers to everything that's going on in social justice. Just lead them through like you would do at any point of your company. Go get the information. You don't have to have it. Go get it. Second is with your friends and family. We can collectively agree that, you know something, we can be better. And third and most important is with our kids. I got to teach my son, you got to teach your son and daughter that, you know something, we need to move into a better space. And so the next generation doesn't do what we don't do. Some people say, Dre, it's hard to talk to my son about this. Well, if you don't talk to him, then he's going to say the same thing 30 years from now. I can't talk to my son about this. So we have a chance legitimately to end the strife. And I'm excited about it. And I'm happy to be part of it. And anything I can do in business and social and personal, I'm up for. I mean, I'm up for. I mean, so I wake up every day and I say, how can I be helpful? That's it. I don't have a, I did a eight, I did a, um, a Zoom call with an eight-year-old last week for 45 minutes because he's having panic attacks and anxieties. <laughs> and I did a call last week with a 16-year-old who's suicidal. And I did a call this morning with a business company out of Chicago. I'm just like, hey, if I can be helpful, dial my phone. And Brittany called me, she said, I said, I'm there. I said, I'm there. That's it. Doesn't matter. I am there because it's important that we show up for each other. It's important that we don't try to be perfect. It's important that we just be transparent. I'm in the process of moving. So this is like my de facto office. <laughs> the movers are downstairs putting my stuff away. So if we do this call a week from now, I have a really nice background and all the rest of that stuff. But I'm not concerned about the background. I'm not concerned. About, I don't do virtual stuff. I really have a nice office. I will, I will have a nice office by the end of the day. But you didn't come to see my nice office. You came because this is a family, this is a unit, and you want to be better, and I want to be better, and collectively we can. It's been just absolutely amazing. And your story is so powerful. So I want to first say, before I make this comment, um, please ask questions. If anybody here has questions or you know, and anything that Andre's talked about, or even navigating challenges in your business. I mean, Andre has just such amazing insight. And I can say from my perspective, the first time I ever met you or heard you speak was at Joe Polish's Genius Network. And you could have heard a pin, pin drop in that room. Because I mean, you can feel it here. And you can feel the sincerity even through a zoom call, which is unique. And I think really um, a testament to your character. He's coming at us. <laughs> You know, it's, it's really a testament to your character and who you are and, and how you're set on this earth to serve. But when Andre talks about leading with the thought of how can I be helpful, he's not kidding. Like he's not, you know, exaggerating that. Literally, our conversation was, I was talking to him about speaking to our clients and community for Sweet Financial and talking about trying to get to school and, and have him be able to make an impact with this next generation that he's talking about. And his comment to me was, Brittany, you just go back think about everything you want me to do. And whatever the, the, the question is, the answer is yes. And, and I'm not kidding. Like that's literally how the conversation went with Andre. So he's set to serve. He's set to help people solve problems and, you know, make us understand what our purpose and our value and our worth is. So I just want to, I'm going to be quiet for a minute because I want to give our mastermind members a chance to ask questions, to, you know, make comments, to get to know Andre um, in, in whatever sense you want. Go for it, Brett. Right. Yeah, I, this, this is a this is a um, obviously an interesting time. I'll say that I, I don't know about other people on the call, but in talking to our clients, because you know, a lot of times they're coming to us with fears, concerns that they have, even away from their money. Clients that I spoke with, everything that happened in this country in the wake of George Floyd, I think bothered them more almost than COVID did. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that they felt that, um, and just, hey, 
vast majority of them are white, at least that I'm working with, but they felt that there was being uh, implied guilt to them that they didn't feel like necessarily deserved. But they also felt that you had, uh, for the first time, the very you know, the foundational ideas and beliefs in the country were being torn apart. Um, you know, even Frederick Douglass said that, that the issue was the fact that you, know, you had the Declaration of Independence promise something to people and just black people were excluded initially. You know, Martin Luther King, when he crossed the bridge to Selma, was waving an American flag because the call was always not to tear the country down, but that the, that the ideals of the country exist for everybody like they did for, you know, a smaller group, obviously, when the country was founded. So I, I think that we're, how do you, two questions, I guess, is, is, is it really, it, it definitely really struck a chord with a lot of clients is, you know, how, how do you get, first of all, let's say that your name's czar of, you know, somehow solving this, this divide or, or the pain that the country is in right now, first of all, what would you do? And then secondly, wh what, if you're a person that's out there, what can you possibly do to make the world a little bit better, but not tearing down every single foundation in this country, which has served us so well? Because I mean, I can tell you, you know, I've been to 56 countries. Excuse my language, but this country is a effing miracle. It really is. Even for the, even for the least among us, I truly believe it is. And I didn't come from your background. But how, how, do, you, how do you solve this without tearing down all the institutions? You don't need to tear down institutions. That's one. We just need to fix the institutions that aren't working. So public education is where generally majority of black folks get their education. Public education is horrid. And you have 40, 50, 60% dropout rates amongst black kids in urban settings. That's fixable. I can show you, my son goes to a private school, has since birth. My ex-wife has a PhD from MIT and a master's from Harvard. She did research on every teacher in the school before he stepped foot in there. She knows who they studied under and their philosophies. And I'll be, don't let nothing go wrong in that school that's not in that handbook and she'll be there waving her, waving her book around. So we don't accept it at the schools for our kids, but it's acceptable in other schools. So if we could fix education, the baseline fundamental, every gang member that's gonna shoot somebody 10 years from now, he's right now a six year old in first grade with no gun. So for a sandwich and a hug, you can stop a gang member from growing into that and shooting somebody. But we're not engaging. We can say, well, it's not my responsibility. Well, that's fine. But if we're America and we want, we don't have to tear down institution, but we can't neglect the ones that we see aren't working. If there's a section of your business that's not working, you don't ignore it. So our educational system does not work collectively for poor people, not just black people, for poor people. So if we put em emphasis and energy on education, you negate two thirds of our problems already. Now for the institutions, the other institutions, criminal justice um, is a system that doesn't work well. When you have 4% of the population that makes up 50% of the prison population, it tells me there's disparity. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm just telling you 4% of people shouldn't make up 50% of prisons. So we need to find a way to say, okay, how do we fix that? And you can even go to, there's probably a couple hundred thousand people in jail for selling weed, which is now legal. When black folks sold weed and Latinos sold weed, it was illegal. Now it's legal and white guys sell weed on the same corner, but they just pay taxes. How about, I'm not saying shoulda, coulda, woulda. At what point do we say, well, since we made this legal, let's go get the people who are in jail and for this same exact offense and make a, let's make an adjustment. And you might knock out a third of your prison population who sold weed. I'm not saying, hey, let every criminal go, but if we legalize something, can we go back and look to say, did you just have a weed conviction? Now, if you had a weed conviction and you shot somebody, we can wipe out the weed and deal with the shooting part. But um, just looking at institutions of lending, of I don't want them living next door to me scenarios. So the redlining of housing, um, access to power. So these things exist. We don't all need to live in the same neighborhood. We don't all need to go to the same schools, but we can make fair some apply. I'm, I, they said it canceled called. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you think about them tearing down statues in the South? And my, thing, my response is they lost. <laughs> Any nation I've ever watched that was conquered by another nation, the first thing they do is tear down the statues in the libraries of the losers. So if you lost, 
that's my reason. The statue shouldn't be there because they lost. <laughs> that's it. for no other reason than if you invade another country, you get rid of their libraries, their scholars, and their statues. So that's my stance on statues. I'm, and that's not even really, I'm not really stuck there. But if we can just look and say, what institutions are not working? And let's make them work. And that in itself, if you fast forward 20 years and there's no more dropout rate and everybody's educated, <laughs> it's a different discussion. It's the people who are uneducated. The difference between Andre in 2020 and Andre in, 20, in 1985 is I can read and write now. I've been taught trauma-informed care. I've taught how to process. When you didn't teach me these things, hurt people hurt people. So when I healed my trauma, I don't hurt people, now I help people. But it's, the differential is education and, and for me, counseling. So if it can work for me, why can't we start giving it to people? Why do you have to give it to them in prison? Let's give it to them in the first, second, third, fourth grade where it's a lot less expensive and there's a lot less damage done to our society. So it's just looking and saying, okay, I don't need businesses to be split and shared. Let's just, I believe if you educate people legitimately, it'll correct itself 20 years from now. But as long as there's an uneducated population, they will always struggle. And that's what makes this, this country is a thousand times better than most countries on the planet. But as long as we have that group of people who are not being educated to that group, they're saying, well, you're in Afghanistan spending trillions of dollars. You're getting moon rocks from Mars, but you can't teach me to read and write. So if we can fix that part, then I believe it'll be a self-correction across the board. And if anybody wants to argue why should we educate people, then um, I don't know what the argument is. I'm not Very saying give everybody a loan, but give them a real school book. <laughs> Hallelujah. Shout out to Boston. Yeah, another another Bostonian here. Andre, thank you so much for, I mean, everything you do. I, I was going to ask you if you have kids, and you just answered the question. I'm so glad you do. How many you have? I have one son. His name is Brooks Elliott Norman. He's officially 15. Um, so he likes to skateboard. Uh, I make him read all the business books. He just ordered Personality is Impermanent and Who Not How by Ben Hardy. He's already, he's read Ben, he's, he reads all the genius books. He's read them all from Keith Cunningham to Joe Polish and to Jason, Jason Flatley. He reads all the books. So part of his allowance is based on him reading business books. That's I was awesome. the happiest dad in the world when he came home and said he didn't want to go to basketball practice. I was like, yeah, let's get the business out. Because as long as he was going to soccer and rugby and fencing, he does all that stuff. When he came home, and I don't want to go to practice, dad. I said, no problem, son. I understand completely. Take this book. So awesome. we've opened up an LLC for him. We've opened up credit accounts for him. We're actually doing loans for him. We're trying to get him buy him his own property. So by the time he's 18, he's going into college to meet his wife and have some friends. He's not going into trying to find a job. Absolutely. I got my my kid underneath me here. And uh, when he was 15, I thought I was going to have to murder him. I thank God didn't have to because he called me. I know people. You could have called me. I know people. But I, I like education. I, I agree. That's such a huge issue. And, and mentorship also is something that just uh, I'm kind of passionate about because so many so many kids don't, you know, have a good mentor. And uh and you know that that's the first step for for bad things to happen. So that's so just wonderful what you do. I, yeah, I got all emotional. I'm glad I'm by myself in this room and people couldn't see me cry. But yeah, thank well, you, thank you. You're welcome. And my first mentor and my number one mentor is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi named Natan Schaefer. I met him at the prison. He taught me forgiveness. He taught me accountability. He taught me responsibility. He taught me how to be human. It was never about me becoming Jewish or him becoming black. He was a teacher, I was a student, end of story. And then I met two nuns from the Catholic church and they became mentors. I met a pastor from the Baptist church and I met the next one and I met the next one and I met Joe Polish and I met Keith Cunningham. And I met, you know what I'm saying, Jay Abrahams. I started meeting people and you just keep adding. 
So most of my mentors don't look like me. And it's not a prerequisite that you look like me. The prerequisite is that you care, you have capacity, you have courage, you know what I'm saying, and that you have you have a plan, you have you have a plan for me. Let's go. And if you happen to look like me, great. But the baseline is that you care, you have capacity, you have courage. Hallelujah. Mr. Wolf, I think you had something. Great. I, I, I grew up in a in a nice town and one of my good friends was uh African American and uh maybe you say can... black guy. <laughs> no, say, say the black guy. It's okay. That's what he was. He's a black guy. Um, but maybe you bring, can bring it down to the, the the basic level of how do you have a, a good conversation without pandering to this um, pandering to him? I don't know what the right words are. Okay. But, um, this is the thing. Right now, what George Floyd situation has done is made Rodney King say, "Wow." <laughs> Rodney King was the first time we saw on film what we call police brutality. And it was like shocking. And the fact that you could do that and get found not guilty was even doubly shocking. George Floyd happened. And this is the worst part of George Floyd dying. The coroner wrote a report that said he didn't die from asphyxiation. He died from something else. We all watched the film and he was alive and breathing before the man put the knee on his neck. But the coroner supported the police version. If there was no videotape, the cop would have just walked away and had been thrown out as whatever they said it was. This is how justice has been working for poor people. This is how justice has been working for black people. And you're not pandering, you're saying, okay, let me become informed. If your kid has uh, any kind of disease, you're gonna get informed. If your kid's going to a particular school, you're gonna get informed. So now there's this group of people called poor black folks this stuff has been happening to, let's just get informed and not favor one over the other. Let's just get informed. And is this really happening? How would I mean, when I send my son to the store, if I told you right now, your child is in South Central LA surrounded by gang members with guns. He just, he pulled over, his car broke down in South Central and his 20 black guys walking up on his car right now. You're gonna panic. You're like, oh my God, something awful is gonna happen. This is horrible. Well, if my son gets pulled over on a highway, and he tells me there's a state trooper behind him, I'm panicking. Yeah. I'd much rather have 20 gang members surround my son than a state trooper because yeah. it's just, it's, I'm, I'm like, oh my, this is gonna be all bad. The way you see gang members surrounding your child in South Central, I see a state trooper pulling my son over on a highway. It's like the fear of factual stats and data that is not right or wrong. I'm not right or wrong. I'm saying there's been enough black people killed to tell me it happens and that this isn't a good scenario. Being pulled over is not a good scenario. <laughs> it's not. To this day, to me, I get nervous. It's, it's not a good scenario. Is this where it all ends? Is there going to be a misunderstanding where I die? And that's real in 2020 for black folks. Is this going to be the misunderstanding where I die? And this is from the people that, so it's not about blame. Sometimes yes, no, sometimes no, yes. It's how to get to a place of understanding what is. You know what I'm saying? And I respect your fear. Please respect mine. Yeah. Dre, just so you know, some, some good news. My sister, her car did uh break down on 95 in uh, harlem and now harlem's nice now they got a disney store up there it's good pretty pretty blonde uh chick and she got nothing but great help from all the people that uh surrounded her so but what but what happens is great story. we don't want to pander we don't want you to feel bad let's just say if there's a movie called how they see us it's five kids in new york who were sent to prison for the for the jogger rape and they had nothing to do with it, but they were convicted and sent to prison, raped, brutalized, stomped, crushed for the crime they were convicted of. And all the while they weren't had nothing to do with it. It was fabricated. There's been too many cases of people let off death row for the DNA said they didn't do it. This said they didn't do it. But before DNA, it was just whatever, they, whatever white people said was. And that's what, so it's, it's just scary 
when you could be walking down the street and they say you did it. And therefore you're going to jail for 30 years. That's a reality or had been a reality for a lot of people for a lot of years. I mean, any black person will do. I mean, the movie Hurricane, which is one of my favorite movies, did a guy just had a vendetta against a boxer and he sent him to prison. Oh, well. And there's no recourse. Until the people who matter, that being you, decides that what's happening to the people who don't matter, that's being us, is not acceptable, it'll go on. For all the years of slavery, centuries, it was never the cries of a black mother watching her son being whipped or hung to stop slavery. It was when Northern whites said for whatever their cause, we disagree with slavery, did slavery end. Never did a black person being hung, killed, whipped, or whatever that happened down south, nobody had a problem with it. No, no slave owner said, you know something? Man, we whipping them too much, let's let them go. Or we killing too many of them, let's just stop this. This isn't fair. It wasn't until Northern whites said no more and fought the Civil War, did slavery come to an end? So until the liberals of the world say no more to, and if you did it, go to jail. If you did it, go to jail, period. I'm not arguing. If you did it, go to jail. But if you didn't do it, you shouldn't go to jail for 36 years. Let's make the system fair. Let's make it accountable. Let's make it transparent. I just watched on TV the other day, there was a guy who was in jail for 12 years for rape. He filed for a new trial. He asked for the fingerprint evidence on his case because DNA is now existence. They want to run it against the database. It took him 12 years before, the, he had to wait for the judge to retire and the DA to retire before they released his fingerprints. 12 years post. And when they got the fingerprints, it took 24 hours to clear him. But for 12 years, they refused to release the evidence. I mean, this circumstantial, we can, we can cherry pick cases, but the system's just upside down. It's just not working. It's not, criminal justice is not about who you are, it's about how much money you have. Can I pay for a lawyer? Can I pay for, if I can pay for a lawyer, I can do almost anything I want. White, black, or Spanish. And if you can't pay for a lawyer, God help you. Because those five boys had they had money to pay for lawyers, they wouldn't have gone to jail. The guy who had the, the, the 12 years, he would have never went to jail if he had. So money determines if you go to jail or not. Money determines if you stay in jail or not. If one of our children are arrested for anything, I can afford bail. My son's not sitting in jail for six months or nine months and 10 months. He's out of there in 24 hours because I can afford the bail. And I know the DA, and I know the commissioner, and I know the governor. He's my son's coming out of there. My son, let my son get arrested for anything in the United States of America. He's coming out of there. And if he gets arrested in London, my wife works for Tony Blair. He's coming out of there. I don't care if he did it. My wife's gonna go to work tomorrow, see Tony Blair, and my son's coming out of there. But if they're poor and they don't have access, then God, God help you. That's not fair. Money shouldn't determine punishment or access to, to to fairness, but it does. So we just wanted to be fair, equitable, not, you shouldn't be punished for being poor. I mean, right now it's a punishment to be poor. But with the advent of information, poor is no longer necessary. There's billions and trillions of dollars that can be made right here online but it, it takes to having the conversation about moving forward. Okay, my big beef with slavery isn't that it happened because people have been enslaved around this world for, for a long time before black folks. So I don't really argue slavery as other people do. I argue the treatment of the slaves. Slavery, you really can't argue. It was our turn. It was unfortunate. I don't agree. I didn't like it. But there were people enslaved all over the planet. I just have a problem with the treatment of the slaves in America. It was just, to me, what you call over the top and unnecessary. Mm. But if we can get to a place of not pandering, but conversation, I have a conversation with you. I'm never gonna make you point fingers at you and you shoulda, coulda, woulda, no. That's not gonna solve anything. Hey, Brad. Brandon. 
something. Yeah, one of the things um, I agree with you 100% on the education, by the way. Um, but one of the things I think that we all deal with in our businesses is we are de facto counselors for a lot of people, no question about it. And so when you're talking to, you know, let's say a suburban kid that's that has a problem or you know, pick, pick the problem, but everybody, you know, Victor Frankl says everybody's got their box that they fill with a certain degree of pain. And some it's a little more serious than other people. But what's the first thing that you tell them to get out of that mindset of being in pain? Because we get calls from people who's, you know, find out their kids are on drugs or whose parents died or who, you know, you name it. We get, we get all these calls for people dealing with personal stuff that happens to sometimes include their money. So what's the first thing you do to try to get them to the point where they can release that pain? First thing I do is not isolate. Isolation is the instant, easy thing to do. And we isolate and people isolate us. So if somebody, if my, if somebody dies in my family and you all know me, you're all gonna be like, wow, that's bad. Dre's such and such died, but and you feel funny about calling me because it's uneasy to call me when I got somebody dead in my family. You love me, you care, but making that phone call is tough. And then following it up is tough. So you're going to send some flowers or something. I really need a phone call. So I'm going to be isolated from my friends because I had a death in my family. It happens all the time. Every time somebody dies, everybody pulls back. We want to push forward, but we, in, in truth, pull back because we feel uncomfortable having that conversation. So first thing is don't isolate yourself. And if you're the other person, don't isolate them. Step up. Don't step back. Because through community, we get connection, and through connection, we can find a way. And then if you're having a lot collectively, these problems, and I would say collectively, like for Genius Network, what I do is if any Genius Network member has an issue like that, they call me. And I get on the phone, and I walk them through because I'm an expert and a specialist in trauma-informed care and suicide prevention and addiction counseling. So that's what I do. Whereas if it's not what you do, then collectively, y'all might say, okay, how do we get somebody on our squad that can be here if this comes up? So you can have an in-house version of what we have at Genius. Yeah, and it looks like you have a question. I do. I'm just curious. What is your personal and professional three-year goal? My personal and professional three-year goal. I'll do personal first. I want to digitize my business. I need to get a new wife. <laughs> and I want to lose, I want to lose weight. I want to get down to like 210, 220 pounds. So you said, Dre, three years from now, I want to be at 215, have a wife, and my business is automated. Digitize, digitize. Hey, so I have a lot of information just sitting in my head. I got to get it out of my head and get it down so other people can get it. That's have you perfect. told that to your current wife? I don't have a current wife. Oh, okay. Just want to make sure about that. Oh. Don't tell her I'm trying to get married again. <laughs> he might try to sign back up. <laughs> uh, Business-wise, I am going super, 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 super all in on fixing the, what um, John mentioned, the, the conversation between us. And I say all of us. How do we have the conversation about race and make it better? So that is a professional goal for 2021 or next three years. Another professional goal is, I don't know if it's like a coaching group, but an accountability group where when people can come, we can have the conversation that again, is going to solving this issue. So I wanna solve the issue of race, race relations, have a coaching group or counseling group around that, where we get on and we figure out how to best do that. Then lastly, um, I don't know. I just want to have enough income so I don't have to worry about helping people. So right now, some one month is great, one month is bad, one month is great, one month is bad, but the phone never stops ringing. So I need to create a system for my business that is automated in a way where I can stay on my course of helping heal race relations in this country. Thank you. You know, Andre, I have Hold on. How are you doing, Jennifer? Oh. I see you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm just taking it all in. So what you thinking so far? 
Oh, well, I had the question that I have, you're going to um, tell me that I'm probably the most cynical person in the world. Be cynical. Um, what do you tell people that don't think that you can come out of addiction? That um, they haven't met people who've come out of addiction. <laughs> yeah. There are numerous people who've come out of addiction and are doing well. So it's physically possible to find real people who beat the addiction challenge. So if they didn't exist, then I would say, there's a 50% chance you're right. But there are people in existence right now who've beaten heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, um, weed, alcohol, um, we call it pornography, gambling, addiction, sugar, coffee, it goes food, there's all kinds of addictions. There are people who have survived and are doing well who are once addicts. So I would say to you that those people exist. And if you need me, I can find a couple for you so you can talk to them. Mm -hmm. A question that I have for that, too, is you, you were talking about the opioids and the suburbs and that conversation and working with those parents. I'm just I'm curious as to what is what do you say to them? What, what are their steps? I mean, I live in an area where there's, you know, it's not this area in particular, but where I grew up has, you know, taken over the community. And so I'm just curious, like, and it's a very, very small town. So what, what are the, you know, what do you say? What, what are the first steps? The first steps is we have to move past the space of denial. Um, I got in trouble for years because my mother believed it wasn't me. <laughs> my son would never do that. My son would never do that. And all the while, she wanted to blame my friends when all the while it was me getting them in trouble. So denial is huge. Early intervention is huge. Like I said, go back to K1, K2, K3. Don't wait till the kid's 15 and he's he's hung over before you want to get in treatment. If we start building treatment in at K1, K2, 1, 2, 3, you're going to diminish the amount of kids who are actually going off the cliff. So denial is one. Early intervention is two. And then again, community support. What I find in the suburbs, if your child has an issue, you want to keep it a secret. You want anybody to know that your kid has a problem because it's going to make you look bad. How can I let you manage my money if you can't manage your own kid? How can you do X and Y for me when you can't do it for your own kid? And that shouldn't be, well, we have to hide our kid to make this business go. So being open and accepting that some kids just mess up. Last year, my kid tried vaping. I mean, I am the addiction counselor specialist guru running around the world. My kid had a great idea. He ordered a vape with my credit card and shipped it to his mom's house. Then when it showed up, his mom, he called his mother and said, I got a box coming, don't open it. So you know what she did? She opened it. And it's like, okay, what are you doing? He's like, I'm being 14. So we had a conversation about him being 14. And you know something? I did a lot worse at 14. So if all my kids did is order a vape, I can, I can get amnesia. About when I was 14, I had guns and all kinds of stuff. Your kid just tried to order a vape. That's not, I can't throw him under the bus. I got to accept that, you know something? I did dumb stuff at 14 too. So it was a conversation that I had versus a punishment. We're quick to, I used to be quick to be punished, which led me to quick to punish. And that doesn't work. Punishment has never shown to be an effective cure for anything. And it's a lot, it's a lot less work than actually talking to the kid. So I believe we can get you some real life examples. And in whatever town that is, if you call me, we can work it out. I'll come to that town. I go from K1 all the way through to grad school. We'll go from the mail room to the CEOs and we'll bring them real help. So Brittany, maybe chat a little bit about what we're doing with Andre. And I think his message is so great and especially in delivering it to the kids in school. And also it's a great message for us adults, but um, you know, this is things that uh, everybody in the mastermind group can also do and provide an amazing service to not only their families and their clients, but also their communities. Yeah, no. Um, so basically the, what we're doing with Andre, aside from obviously him giving his time to, to, like, to you all today, he is actually on December 2nd, he's going to do a virtual presentation to our clients and community. 
um, you, you know, delivering the message, inspiring hope, uh, you know, helping people understand that, that you're here for a purpose. So we hired Andre to, to do that for our community. And then we've lined it up right now. We're in a part of the country that uh, we're not allowed to even get together for Thanksgiving. They, there, there we are. So what we're doing is we're having him um, zoom into the, the local school and, and, and deliver a presentation to the junior, senior high kids in hopes of, you know, inspiring that change. You know, we are in a community too, where unfortunately um, their, their drugs are present, alcohol is present, just like anywhere else. And if we can, if we believe fully, we can make a change, just like Andre said, from the younger ages, it just creates an amazing, beautiful world in the future when you're you're empowering those young people to be amazing and contributing adults. So what I would say is, you know, you heard Andre's message here, uh, reach out to him and consider having an event for your clients. You wanna do something that's a differentiator. Andre's talking about things and in his message, he's opening up communication opportunities that, that people are maybe a little bit scared to talk about. So you look at the, the opportunity to be a change agent, to be different in front of your clients, in front of your prospects, in front of communities. My goodness, I can think of right now as I'm listening to Andre, I'm sitting here going, our clients are going to benefit in so many ways from this. And, and when you think about the multi-generational approach, like I think about my grandparents and it gets me a little emotional thinking about it. My grandparents want more than anything in this world for their grandkids to thrive. And, you know, for me, I have siblings that maybe haven't gone down that path. And I think about bringing Andre to every community. I mean, literally, Andre, if I could just sign you up to do this global world tour right now, I would Let's do go. it. <laughs> Let's do it. I wish I could live. I want to be on that stage with you, man. <laughs> Listen, no, but I, I, go ahead. There's room to help everybody. Everybody counts. Everybody matters. I was saying, don't jump over your own kids and save somebody else down the street. Your kids matter too. Don't let privilege make you feel as though I got to go help the poor kids. No. Brooks Elliott Norman comes first in my life. Everybody else comes after. If you said to me, Andre, sacrifice your kid, and there'll never be any more famine in the world, no more, no more hunger, I tell you, you better stop planting corn. You can't have Brooks. I'm not giving my kid up for nothing or nobody. I don't care what anybody says. And if your clients, if you say, if you save them some money, they'll be thankful. You help save their kids, they'll be lifelong friends. And when you go to somebody, you have the financial part done. That's, that's what differentiates you from the next company. You do that. And you start saying, we can impact the most prized possession in your portfolio, your child. We can help them be better. And they don't have to be addicts to be better. Some kids just need to be motivated. Some kids just need direction. Some kids might want to do community service. But we can impact the most prized possession in your portfolio, your child. And you will get their attention. If you told me, Andre, I have a class for your son, I am paying attention. You say, Andre, I can help you make 2% on this investment. Send it to my attorney. That's mm -hmm. how that works. Andre, you're dead on. And we talk a lot in this group about impact and differentiation and, you know, really making a difference in clients' lives. And everybody here agrees that we talked about it earlier today. Investing is a commodity. You can go to anybody and get a decent investment, a decent return. It's what else we can bring that makes the difference. So, Andre, can you share how could everybody get a hold of you to talk about having you speak to their community? Make it easy. I'm going to send you, I'm putting my email in the chat. Perfect. And while you're doing that, Andre, I just want to thank you for um, December 2nd. And it's just going to be such an amazing evening and day with the kids. And um, just having you speak to this group just reminds me of uh, what a great thing we're doing. So thanks in advance. And I would say this. When, when the world opens back up, I'm coming to visit you in person 
Absolutely. That's a done deal. Awesome. So we've got it in the chat here. Admin okay, and Andre so that is the email to the admin. That is the website. And that is the phone number to my admin. So if you want to schedule something, book something, whatever that is, they do all that stuff. If you send it to me, it's going to get lost. My superpower is not admin skills. <laughs> so many of us can relate to that. <laughs> I tell the truth. I used to lie to myself about it. I can do it. I can answer an email. It's not as easy as answering emails as you might think. <laughs> it sounded simple. So I had to do like, I got 25 people. How many people on this call? 22 people send me an email. I'm done. I'm done at three. So, <laughs> so I, I admit I'm horrible at admin stuff, but I'm great in person or online. Amen. We will we will fully attest to that. Well, Andre, we can't thank you enough for, for sharing your time with us today and impacting our group. Um, I, I sincerely encourage every single person here to reach out to Andre. And, and the thing too is, you know, I think about Andre, you've talked before about, you know, the addiction thing and the struggles and everything that goes on in people's personal lives. And, and if nothing else, just listening to Andre here today, if you have something in your life that somebody is facing, don't isolate them, right? Like that was a huge takeaway for me. Uh, take Andre's message to heart and, and really go out to make a difference. Um, Andre can have a trickle effect. And I know that's what you do, my friend, is you reach one and it just continues to waterfall from there. So Mr. Mr. Domino. Mr. Domino. Yeah. yeah that, yes. I'll go. I got a friend who has a domino theme. I just text you a video, Brittany. So if you can send it to the group, I don't know how to put stuff in, in the chat. That's a whole yeah. other level of stuff. So if you can email them the video, it's the Academy of Hope program and what we're doing in South Carolina. And if we can work with that demographic, there's no demographic we can't work with. Mm, beautiful. I will do that. Andre, you have a wonderful day. Thank you with all the sincerity of our hearts. We appreciate all right, Mike. you. All right, Mary. All right, Mary Ann. I see you. <laughs> I'm saying, Anna, I see you. Bobby, we have to talk about you in this boat thing. Thanks for your time today. Craig's on the line. Okay. Pete disappeared on us. You know what I'm saying? But Miss Thomas. Hi. Hi. How old is your son? He's five. Great age. You can brainwash yeah. him. You can brainwash him at five. Exactly. At 13, they start telling you stuff. See, if you brainwash <laughs> him now, what they tell you at 13 is what you brainwash him at five. They turn into people around 12. Andre, what is just one thing, if I could share one thing with my team um, in Tampa, what would that be? Andre was just in Tampa three days ago. He should have called. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you, if I could share, if you can share one thing with your team is that collectively we have to get more educated and then allow people to do what they do well. Not be territorial, but if hey, we're one unit, then let's let's be one unit. Let's all go study whatever it is we're gonna study, and then we bring that skill to the team. So everybody has a different gifting. So let's find out what your gift is and show you how to bring that forth. And then don't be scared to let people leave the team. You can't keep them forever. Your kid, he's gonna go from five to fifteen to twenty, and he's gonna be out the door. You know, all you can do is give all you can to that child, everything that you have, and you know when he leaves at 18, he's better for it. Your team has to get the same thing. You have to put everything into them with the anticipation that they're going to leave you. But what it does is when they go out into the world and do good, it'll speak about who you are. So you want to put great people into the world through your agency. You don't want to be, I went to a service one time, they said, be a vessel, don't be a stopgap. So pour into them so they can pour into the world and trust that the next person will come behind because you'll be a great place to be. Oh, she made those five people. We need to go there. You'll be if you hold them, it's all bad. Train them, train them, train them up so they can go out into the world. Agreed. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, Marianne. You didn't say anything. 
You're allowed to unmute yourself, Marianne. And you Hi. too, Mary. <laughs> I see you, Mary. And Marianne. Thank you so much. That was great. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank Andrew. you. Hey, Don. Who hey, that's sitting with you? Thank you. You're welcome. Well, my friend, Mr. Sweet and, and team, Colin, you just sitting down there chilling. There's so much to, to take in. Um, yeah, thank you so much. It was, it was amazing listening to you talk and look forward to, to hearing more from you in the future. We can, it's simple. We can get on next time and just have a conversation. Just yeah, me, Brian, say, we can just come back on another time and just, we pick a topic and have a conversation. Not so much, not so much lecturing, but we'll have more of a conversation so we can get through stuff. Now, I'm not saying your name because I don't know how to pronounce it. Drain? How you say it? Dre. Drain. Oh, okay. That's the white version of spelling my name. <laughs> you Swedish or something? Well, you're going to laugh. I'm actually named after a doctor. Well, I'm named after my dad's best friend, but yeah. don't spell it like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, E-R-Y-E. -E. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I won't be using it, but it's okay. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> The white version of my name. I like that. How you doing, Mike? <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I just, I just, they just told me I got a three o'clock call. So I have to run. But set it up. We can jump back on, do a conversation. It's been a great, it's been a blast. I appreciate you. And if anything I can ever do to be helpful, um, if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to me, reach out to Brittany and she'll reach out to me. Well, you're already doing it, my friend, because you're changing the world. Good luck. Keep it up. All right. Thanks, Andre. We'll see you on the Thanks second. You. All Thank right. you. Hey there, Brittany Anderson here. If you are loving what you're hearing on our Ultimate Advisor podcast, don't keep us a secret. Share us with other advisors that you think would benefit from the messages that you are hearing. The easiest way to do that is to simply send them to ultimateadvisorpodcast.com. And if you want to learn a few other ways that we could potentially serve you as an advisor, go check out ultimateadvisormastermind.com. As always, we are so happy to have you here with us as part of the Ultimate Advisor community, and we look forward to a continued relationship.